I thought I'd continue talking tonight about the three trainings that Christopher started to talk about yesterday. Sila Samadhi Panya, ethics, uh, morality, and uh, the training of the mind and wisdom. I wanted to talk particularly about uh, contemplative practice, about mind training practice tonight. But I wanted to start, um, because it's a good place to start, with one of the, um, an idea that Christopher said at the very end of his talk last night, where uh, sometimes there's a line that you hear that just goes through your mind all day long and you keep on thinking about it. Isn't that true? I, I actually think some of the most important learnings of my whole Dharma career were not things that people taught in the, in the midst of a formal teaching, but something they sort of said, like an offhand remark or a side remark or something I overheard someone say to someone in a hallway. Anyway, at the end of Christopher's talk last night, he said, uh, never feel sorry for yourself. Remember that? Because if you do, you'll be making yourself into a victim. So I thought about that a lot, and I thought, I think that's very important about uh, not feeling sorry for yourself in the way that makes you a victim. Sorry for yourself in a way that uh, doesn't hold any space for wisdom. Uh, things couldn't be otherwise. Uh, no one's ever a victim. It's the result of karmic circumstances. But there are certainly difficult things that happen to us, and there are times when we are certainly in difficult conditions in our bodies or with our minds. So what do we do if we don't feel sorry for ourselves? And I thought it's really important, uh, I think, to have the, the clarity that feeling sorry for yourself in the way that makes you a victim might, is, is probably not a good thing to do. But you could hold yourself in compassion. You could be touched by your difficulty. That difficulty moves us, whether it's in ourselves or in somebody else. Uh, Christopher said it this afternoon or this morning or somewhere it all falls and it all, it all blends after a while, about that sometimes we actually cry. When we cry for ourselves, we cry with other people. We are empathic animals. We are moved by things that happen. We're terribly moved, enormously moved, by uh, loss and pain, especially amongst those that things, people and causes that we hold dear. There's a very famous Zen story about um, a Zen master whose uh, child dies and whose uh, students come to be with him, and uh, the Zen master is sits in his in his home and cries. And the students sit silently with him for a long time and they're moved by the depths of his tears. And uh, at some point someone asks him uh, this question. They say, you know, you've been teaching us all along about the ephemeral nature of everything, that everything that comes into form leaves, that everything that arises passes away is how it's most 
translated as the Buddha said it. You've taught us that things that are born die. Isn't that true? And the Zen master said, it is true. And I'm very sad. The fact that something is true and inevitable doesn't mean that we aren't touched by it. doesn't mean that we don't feel sad. But it's important to think about feeling sorry for and feeling sad with as a difference. There's a, um, a teaching that's part of the Brahma Viharas that's called the teaching of near enemies. There are uh, states of mind that look almost like the Brahma Viharas, but they aren't quite it. I thought of it particularly with the compassion. You could hold yourself in compassion, which is different from pitying yourself. Pity is the near enemy of compassion. It looks a little bit like it. You're moved by somebody else's situation. Think about situations where you see somebody in distress. The far enemy of compassion might be something like contempt or even cruelty. The near enemy, which really doesn't look like compassion at all, seems quite obviously the opposite of compassion. The near enemy of compassion is pity. You might think of the, of the difference between looking at someone in a difficult situation and thinking about them, poor thing, if only they hadn't done this or that or um, somehow making that person responsible for what's happened to them, somehow holding them at a distance. Poor thing, I'll take care of it, him or her. It's quite different from the movement of compassion that moves nearer to a person. When it's explained in the text, it says that uh, what's, what's present in pity that's not present in compassion is aversion, is holding that person at a distance. There's something about that person that's disgusting to you. You see a person who's perhaps uh, living in the street in a, in a ragged condition, and maybe you think to yourself, that poor person, something they did caused them to be that. The circumstances of life and, and of, of, of who knows how far back have conspired so that that person is living in that way, just as, for whatever reason, all the reasons of cause and effect forever and ever, I am living the way I am. Someone told me a story once, and I hadn't planned to tell it right now, but I've thought of it, so I'll tell it to you. It's a very dramatic story. A man told me this story at the end of um, a five or uh, at the end of an eight-day retreat, actually, and the, it was a it was a um, it was a mindfulness retreat. And the way that it worked out with the interviews was that I didn't meet him until the end of the retreat. There were three teachers, and that my colleagues saw him on the second or third day and the middle of the retreat, and I saw him at the end. And uh, when I saw him, um, 
He told me this story. He said, uh, this has been an amazing retreat. I had no idea what would happen to me on this retreat. This is back on the East Coast. I was teaching in Massachusetts. And he said, um, I had no idea what this was all about. Actually, I've never been on retreat before. I haven't meditated before. I came on this retreat because I read in Time magazine that meditation is very in these days. And <laughs> it's a good thing to do. So I signed, and it, and it coincided. I had this week off, so I came. <laughs> and um, he said the very first night uh, when we had entered into the silence, and uh, I sat down quietly and I began to follow the instructions of being with the breath and trying to be with my body. I realized that um, um, the memory of an event that happened to me four years ago, which I have worked very hard to put into a closet in the back of my mind, an event that was so terrible and so traumatic to me, I hid it away in the back of my mind, started already to emerge the very first evening. He said, and I thought to myself, uh-oh, I have a whole week here stretching out ahead of me and nothing much on the horizon. I don't know what I'm going to do with this event. He said, it soon became clear that I had to let that event out and be with it. He said, so can I tell you my story? Do I, do you want to, is it all right if I tell you? I said, it's fine. He said, this is a story. He said, four years ago, I uh, live in such and such a city, a major metropolis on the East Coast. He said, four years ago, I was coming home late at night, and I, I was by myself, and I was walking through a neighborhood where it was probably not so wise to be walking by myself late at night. And he said, um, I had unusually a great deal of money in my wallet. I had $700 with me. So I was walking along, going home, and suddenly, from out of the shadows, a man jumped out in front of me. And I, and I could tell from his look that he wasn't in a regular state. He was probably very high on drugs. He said, and he had a gun. And he held the gun at my chest. And he said, I'm going to kill you. Give me everything that you have. He said, so I gave him my wallet right away. He said, I didn't think about it at all. I gave him my wallet. And he took the wallet and put it in his pocket. And then he put the gun back at my chest. He said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He said, I was completely terrified. Because he looked like he was going to do it. And he was saying, that, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, in order to get up the nerve to pull the trigger. And I said to him, stop. And he stopped. And I said, wait a minute, I'll give you my watch. Look, this is a very good watch. I'll give you my watch here. Take the watch. He took the watch, put it in his pocket, and then he put the gun back. And he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And he said, I had nothing left. I was terrified. And I said to him, stop. And he stopped. And I said, listen to me. You did great tonight. Do you have any idea how much money is in that wallet? <laughs> There's a lot of money in that wallet. You did wonderful. And that watch, that's a very, very good watch. Your friends are going to be so proud of you. <laughs> you did great. Now go home. <laughs> he said, and the person turned on his heel and left. So that's already, that's not even the whole story. That's just the <laughs> beginning of the story. 
I know, even I tell it to you now, and I've told that story a number of times, I get nervous every time I tell a story. Even as I tell you the story, I'm telling you that he's alive telling me the story, so you know it at an all right <laughs> But it's a terrifying story, isn't it? And it's amazing to me, because when I tell that story, I always think that's enough story, because I said to him at that point, how did you know to say that? And he said, I don't know, it just came to me. And that may actually be the most important part of the story, that I am so moved by the notion that when all the wiring is gone, when there's nothing hardly there to connect with in the other person, in terms of a person that can really relate, the wavelength that gets through is you did great. You did good. Your friends are going to be proud of you. The consoling, the confirming, the affirming message, the loving message, in essence, is what gets through. That may be the best part of the story. Anyway, Brett tells me the rest of the story. He said uh, that I had never had a terrifying experience like that. He said, I just put it out of my mind. My whole body was traumatized. My mind was traumatized. He said, so I came here, and the first night, there it is, right out in my mind. So I decided, okay, it's here. I've got nothing much else to do all day long. I might as well sit with my story. He said, so I sat with the story, and I tried to breathe. I'd sit down. I'd take some breaths. Boom, the story's here. He said, so I would replay it. I would let it play in my mind like a movie. And I would, I would hear the whole dialogue. He said, I said, he said, I said, he said, I said. And I would shake because it really, I, I could feel it still in my body. My body would vibrate. I'd feel cold. My hands would get cold and clammy. So finally the movie would finish and I'd take some breaths and I'd be relieved and for a while and maybe we'd have lunch and then I'd sit down, maybe be quiet. Next sitting, it's back again. And the movie would play again. And he said, day after day, that movie played. And each time, I could sit a little bit more calmly as the movie played. I, I, he said, I think I began to think, I know the end of this movie. It's going to be all right. <laughs> and I could sit with it a little bit more. He said, so finally, I could sit through the whole movie. And I felt all right about it. The movie would play from the beginning to the end. And I thought, you know, I'm really coming to a good place about this. I really think I'm healing. He said, then yesterday, he said, something happened that hadn't happened before. The movie started again, and it played through me. And I sat really quietly about it, and I thought, I'm really okay. And then I thought to myself, If that person who had the gun had had my life before that night, he would have been me. And if I would have had his life, I would have been him. Said, And in that moment, I forgave him. And then I really felt better. He said, do you think that's an insight? <laughs> I think that that moment of saying, there but for the grace of everything, go I, which makes no difference between that person and me. These are different bodies with different karmic paths, 
but that's all. There aren't better or worse, just lives living themselves out. And the ability to be close to somebody else. And Christopher spoke about so well the other night that love makes you closer and uh, anger and aversion makes you further apart. And disgust and contempt moves you away. And pity has some level of saying, that's not me. But compassion has the opposite. It says, it is me. Not even it could be me. It is me, in another guise. The near enemy of, the far enemy of love, of, of metta, is hate, aversion, to clear. The near enemy is possessiveness and demandingness and attachment. It looks like love but it's demanding so that while pity has a little bit of aversion in it, attachment has clinging in it. So it might look like love, but it demands something. I need you to be a certain thing for me. I need you to be here all the time or in this way. Mudita, empathic joy, delight in other people's good fortune. The the obvious enemy of delight is envy or jealousy or really wishing that theirs wouldn't last so you are not having wouldn't feel so bad. It's pretty obvious. In the text, it says that the near enemy is exuberance, getting too excited about it. I'm not sure exactly whether exuberance is the translation that I would most choose. I think what it's meant to convey, though, is that what's meant to be in place in all of those situations that holds compassion as compassion and metta as metta, and mudita as mudita, is wisdom. And the wisdom always is, this is happening because nothing else could be happening now. This is the karmic result of everything that's made this moment. It couldn't be different. And it won't last. So wisdom holds difficulty and difficult suffering states in the awareness that they're the only thing that can be happening. They're not a mistake and that they won't be happening forever. That there's a time span for everything. I think it was the first, it was really intimations of the impermanent nature of all experience that was the first source of real solace, my first sense that this would really make a difference in my life, this practice. As I began to really feel like I knew in my bones, in my marrow, that things are what they are, arising and passing away, and especially that they would not last. I felt myself changed in my ability to be with difficult 
times. It's not that the difficult times weren't painful. It's that they weren't as frightening because I knew they wouldn't last forever. And at the same time, I knew that it changed me in terms of causing me to cherish more the not difficult times. Not even just the lovely times, but even the not difficult times. The, the, I, I have less neutral times. I think there are no neutral times. They become neutral with lack of attention, I think. So I like that teaching very much about the near and far enemies. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It looks like equanimity because it's able to be with what's happening, but it actually has a little element of aversion in it. It's no, it doesn't. You know, it's nothing to me. So really, looking away a little bit from the situation. So I thought I would take that point of equanimity, which I think is another way of talking about the mind state that is wide enough and balanced enough and uh, awake enough to really be a reflection of wisdom. To tell you a Buddha story image that I like a lot. It has to do, by the way, with I, I thought about telling you this story because I uh, got two uh, notes today that said I was very interested in your teaching about pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Would you speak some more about it? And what does that mean, that things will stop being pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or that it should all be the same to us? Or do you just accept everything as it's happening? So I think maybe I didn't explain it well enough, so I'll try again. Things do have different flavors. Moments of experience have different flavors. And it's not incorrect to have a feeling of moving towards pleasant experience and moving away from unpleasant experience and not particularly noticing neutral experience. That's just what the mind does. It's the natural movement of the mind. I think it's not about not seeing that movement, of the, uh, about not having the mind move in those ways. It's about seeing the mind move, knowing. I'll say that better than seeing knowing that the mind does move in that way, realizing that the mind has moved in that way. And having realized that, really being alert to what the possibilities are, that action will come out of a place of aversion if you act at that point, or a place of greed if you act out of that point, or a place of not clear seeing if you act out of that point. Just to see, is to see the movement of the mind and with alertness have that movement balance itself. So here's a story that I thought of. This is an image that I like a lot. You probably, most of you, maybe many of you, know the story of the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. After his period of time, he's left his family. He's gone and studied with one great meditation master with whom he's become a great um, uh, adept at concentration meditation. Can 
live with all kinds of austerities and make the most refined mind states and endure the most difficult conditions. And then he studied with another teacher for a number of years, both of whom, according to legend, invited him to stay and teach along with them. And in, uh, in the story, he says, no, I, I need to go off because I still have not discovered the, the end of suffering. What will be the key for human beings for the end of suffering? And he goes off to Bodhgaya in the story and uh, sits down for his night at which, the end of which he claims to have understood and begins to teach his dharma. One of the really lovely uh, image stories that comes with that night is that uh, Mara, the forces of evil personified, come, comes to tempt him in that night. And so uh, in pictures of it, you see Mara um, attacking the Buddha with fearful thoughts, fearful experiences. And you see the Buddha sitting serenely, filled with equanimity, not being uh, startled or frightened at all by any of these terrible, frightening images that Mara is sending. Arrows, the Mara sends. And in the text, it says that the Buddha has so surrounded himself with a field of equanimity filled with metta that the arrows that Mara unleashes hit that field, turn into flowers, and fall to the, fall to the earth. I love that. I actually have a very, um, oh, I think this is probably incorrect to say in the same sentence with the Buddha's marvelous field. But when I was growing up, one of the first advertisements on television for Colgate toothpaste <laughs> was that Colgate toothpaste built up an invisible shield around your teeth and that the bacteria that would uh, make cavities in your teeth, do you remember that? Could not get through the Colgate invisible shield. And so every time I tell that story of the Buddha sitting with his invisible shield, I think about, and I, I won't sing it for you, but I could think of the jingle for the Colgate invisible shield. But I love the idea that, uh, that those arrows strike that invisible shield and fall to the ground as flowers. Then Mara unleashes forces of erotic attachments, of erotic enticements. So all the kinds of erotic things, that all the lusts that might come by and seduce the mind into lustful thinking. So already here have come all these frightening things, seduce the mind into angry retort, and here come all these erotic visions that could seduce the mind into lustful response. But the Buddha sits serene and awake. All this bombarding of imagery, and the Buddha is not overwhelmed. And in a very classic poem in one of the early scriptures, he in essence says, this is it, Mara. You can't get me. I have vanquished you. And then he names five spiritual faculties that he has. He says, I have wisdom and, and I have energy and wisdom and mindfulness and concentration and faith. These are strong in me, my spiritual power. I, I have vanquished you, Mara, 
And then in the story, Mara slinks off and disappears and is gone. And then the Buddha has his vision, and he stands up and says, I now understand. And then he begins his life of teaching. So I love the myths. Uh, I, I take that to be a myth, uh, but I love the imagery of it. Because then I think to myself, it's wonderful to think that there's a, uh, a formula for spiritual power that is available for us to develop. So we talk about um, cultivating uh, samadhi, cultivating uh, a strong mind, one that's able to concentrate, that's able to be mindful on that base of concentration, that's able to uh, be energized in its clear seeing and sustain its energy from mindfulness, from not being distracted, from being attentive, that's able to, with mindfulness, arrive at insight, and from insight, wisdom, and from wisdom, faith. I love the idea. I take it as a, I take that Buddhist story as a paradigm for all of us. Those are regular things. We could practice concentration and mindfulness and develop wisdom, have energy, come to a place of faith. I was sitting here just in the last sitting, and I thought of a story um, that I think might be a good story to tell at this point about um, a fearful experience, an experience that might have been fearful, that was manageable, that I think would be, uh, that you could relate to, because it's a retreat experience. And there's a way in which I see how these five spiritual faculties all had a piece in making that experience workable. It's an an interesting set of, uh, it's an interesting list, you know. Uh, We have a list of uh, the normal list, like a list of the hindrances of the mind. They're all afflictive emotional states, so they're sort of five similar kinds of things. The paramitas are more or less all qualities of a perfected heart. And they're all more or less things that people do and could practice, like honesty or morality or renunciation. The only one of them that's a little bit um, off in terms of being all exactly the same grouping is one of them is wisdom. And you can get up in the morning and say, to say today I'm going to be totally honest or tremendously generous. It's a little hard to say today I'm going to be really wise. You know, that's <laughs> a, it's a, pushing it a little bit. But they're all, the other nine are things you do. The five spiritual faculties or powers are interesting because you can say today I'm really going to work on concentration and mindfulness because they're things you could work on. And again, here is wisdom back. It's present sometimes, and sometimes not so available when the mind is flurried. Faith, I think, is a a thing that accumulates, develops. 
I think, becomes established faith more and more. Energy is certainly a thing that comes and goes, energy level. Anyway, here's a story. It's quite an old story, maybe 25 years old. I was was a, a, a young meditator in every sense. I was young in my meditation and 25 years younger than now. And I was uh, a retreatant at uh, uh, a retreat on the big island of Hawaii. And uh, many of my friends, now some of my colleague teachers, were on that retreat with me. So we remembered all of us collectively. And uh, in the afternoon of one of the days in the middle of the retreat, I sat down for the two o'clock sitting, and the bell rang. Uh, I heard a bell ring quite soon after I sat down. And I, first of all, had this thought, it's so interesting, I make myself the hero of it, the heroine of every story. <laughs> the, the bell rang, and so I thought to myself, oh, look what a good meditator you are. That, that was, a, you know, that was a 45-minute sit, and it felt like five minutes, you know? <laughs> You're really improving in this meditation. Anyway, it turned out it was five minutes. And, um, and actually, the bell had rung outside, not inside. So I got up and I looked out the window and our teachers were assembled outside and ringing a bell and clearly wanting everyone to come down. So we were in three or four huts, big huts, on the beach, on on a beach at the south coast of the Big Island. And they were two-story huts and we had our sleeping rooms in them. The meditation space was upstairs in one of those huts. We were 60 people crammed in much smaller space than this. So here come people from all over, and they assemble around the teachers, who say, uh, we have just had, heard from the civil defense in Hilo. There's been an earthquake off the coast of Japan. There is now a tsunami coming across the Pacific Ocean, and it is headed for this coast. And uh, the civil defense is sending a bus from Hilo to evacuate us. So, okay, they said, go to your room, get, uh, don't pack, don't do anything, just get your, your wallet and your plane tickets and come back. So everybody walked to their room, no talking, in silence, everyone went to their room. It was amazing how everybody held it together. They went to their room, got their wallet, they came back, teachers are again assembled. They say, the civil defense has called again. They're not coming with a bus. There are no buses. They're using the buses to evacuate Hilo. You may remember there was a devastating tidal wave in uh, Hilo uh, some years before. So there are no uh, buses coming. And uh, uh, they said that we should evacuate, but we have one car and 70 people. And it's a windy road around the shore and an hour's drive to Hilo. So clearly we're not going to get out that way. So people are saying, well, there's a jungle right behind us. How about not staying on the beach? How about let's going a little bit inland? So they said, no, no, it's not safe in the, you know, back there. It won't do you much good. The civil defense has said, take high ground. Well, we're on the beach, you know. <laughs> and high ground is the second floor of these huts. Uh, take high ground. So. Uh, they said, so, uh, and it's now uh, 2.30, and uh, it's expected at 5. So, uh, so we should make plans. And they said, they said uh, carry up. So they gave out jobs. 
uh, fill the bathtubs with water in case the water supply is cut off, so we'll have clean water. Take uh, all of the, so you, you folks go into the kitchen, carry up the crackers and crates of fruit up to the upstairs, take uh, mosquito insect repellent and uh, matches. I remember it, you know, like it was yesterday. And we just did it. We carried all the stuff upstairs and we prepared ourselves for some eventuality that we would survive. And so then everything was prepared and it didn't take too much time and it's not five o'clock, maybe it's a little bit after three. And I remember uh, one of the teachers at that point saying, well, let's sit. So we sit down. And um, the, the configuration of the room was such that if you were the retreatants and I was that teacher, there would be behind me a huge picture window. So looking out on the ocean and seeing the horizon. So if you were me in that situation, you would be seeing the horizon. You would be imagining that at any moment it was going to rise up. As a, and even I thought everything like I didn't plan to die this way. Could we sit on the roof? At least we could swim a little bit. I had every possible thought. But here we are, and this, the particular teacher said, I'll tell you a story. He said, once upon a time, there was a Zen teacher, and someone said to him, what would you do if you knew that the waters of the west were rising, and the waters of the east, and the waters of the north, and the waters of the south? And he said, I guess I would just sit. So he said, let's sit. So we sat. I think at that moment, I, I'm just going to stop now to see which of the five factors uh, of spiritual factors. Either that's a piece of wisdom when there's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do. Also, it's a piece of faith in the world, in history. People have sat down when there was nothing else to do and said, I'm not going to struggle. I have some choice left. I have no choice about what to do. I have no choice about what can happen. I have the choice of whether I will struggle or whether I will not struggle. Choice about meeting this moment with a heart and a mind of peace or not. That's an enormous faith teaching. People do this. So we sat. So here I am sitting, and I'm sitting, and my heart is going ding, 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 ding. I'm opening my eyes, and I'm checking the, <laughs> checking the horizon, and the heart is going ding, 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 ding. And I closed my eyes, and I just took a lot of breaths, and I, I counted them, and I took some more breaths. And as I was able to take some breaths, I was able to really begin to be able to notice what was happening with my body processes. If I say this to you now as an annotated version, I say, as the mind settles down and becomes a little concentrated, there's a little bit of concentration in the mind from the breathing. Then mindfulness is able really to begin to work, able to say, this is happening, now this is happening, this is happening, and this is happening, this is happening. My hands are cold, my palms are clammy, and my heart is beating fast, and I'm taking another breath in and another breath out. Another breath in, another breath out. My heart is slowing down a little bit. It's slowing down a little bit. 
My hands are warming up. I'm taking another breath. Taking another breath. I'm opening my eyes. Oh, I shouldn't have opened my eyes. <laughs> my heart is going ding, ding, ding. So don't open your eyes. Don't open your eyes. A moment of mindfulness is really a moment of um, clear comprehension of what the next moment could, what you could do in that moment. Clear co- what you could do is not open your eyes. You could just sit. It's not going to come or not come depending on whether your eyes are open. And I can't prepare myself. If my eyes are open and I prepare, it's going to be different than not prepared. You close the eyes. And you start to, I started to feel better. I was not happy to be there. But I was really happy not to be overwrought in my body, not to have my heart pounding so fast. I see that you like this story. I'll tell you, uh, I was going to skip this part, but it's a sweet part, and it taught me something. I looked over at the person next to me, who was and is my good friend, James Barras. And uh, James's uh, wife, Jane, was home in Berkeley, pregnant with their child at that time, and they had waited so long to have a child. And I had the thought, I really hope this earthquake doesn't this uh, tidal wave doesn't come so James can go home and be with his child. And it so lifted me up to think about somebody else and somebody else's situation. And I realized that I was so glad to have had that thought. I didn't tell myself, think that thought. That thought thought itself. And it so picked up my heart to see that the inclination of our hearts when we're not frightened is to look out for the well-being of other people. I looked across the room and I um, saw a man who's, uh, who died just this last year. He was a very big practitioner at Spirit Rock and a big supporter and a board member. And he was at the time um, an uh, administrator, at one, executive at one of the television stations in San Francisco. So I, I was making plans. I think, well, if we survive, We'll have Len use the one telephone in the manager's office to uh, call San Francisco and uh, put on the on the television that we're all safe because our people will worry about us. And I remember this was the same good feeling. I'm glad to be worrying about other people, not me. And you know, normally on meditation retreats, when you're sitting, you don't say, you know, we don't give the instruction, reach out and hold hands with the person next to you. But I did. I reached out and I poked James. He looked at me and I gave him my hand and we sat and held hands for a while. It was a very dear thing to sit and hold hands. And then after a while we let go and didn't. But it was very dear to know that somebody that I loved a lot was with me. Whatever was going to happen. And so we sat. In terms of energy, everyone was wide awake. Nobody had sleepiness for a minute. Nobody was dull. Nobody's attention wandered. And by and by, it got to be five o'clock, and five past five, and ten past five, and a quarter past five, and five thirty, and the sea did not rise up, and the horizon didn't move, and nothing happened. And one of the managers said, I'll call the civil defense. And she called. And she said, 
they've called off the alert. It's not happening. She said, we were supposed to stay a little bit more. It got dark. Then she called again and said, we can go downstairs now. And we went outside, and there's a uh, volcano on that island. And it had started to erupt in the afternoon. And someone looked over, and the volcano was erupting. And I thought it was a great lesson, and if it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you like the story. I like to tell it. But it's full of wisdom. It's really true. If it's not one thing, it's another. That's just a very dramatic day. But it's kind of like Brett's story. When I start to tell it to you, you know we survived because here I am telling you. But I, we didn't just survive. We really, we really survived well. I don't know how everybody else was, but there I was, and it was 25 years ago, so it, it, it really makes it clear to me that this is what the mind wants to do. It takes care of us in difficult situations. That with support, Someone says, hey, we can do this. Look, the Zen master said, we can do it. Says, oh, the Zen master did it? I'll do it. Okay, what do I know how to do? I know how to take a breath. I know how to take another breath. I know how to pay attention. Look, my hands got warm. My heart slowed down. My heart slowed down. I'm not so frightened. I can open my eyes. I realize I really love James. And I love this one and that one and that one. And as a matter of fact, in this moment, I want everyone in this room to survive. I want everyone in San Francisco to know about it. It's a very, um, it was for me, when I think about it now, um, just such an establisher of that faith that we come equipped with hearts tending in the direction of peace. It's not that we're trying to learn something that's uh, not native to human beings. Many years ago, and I'm just going to tell you this tiny piece, it was a a moment of of a, a Larry King interview in the early days of Larry King. Now Larry King is mostly talking to presidents and prime ministers. But on a day, probably 15 or more years ago, Larry King was uh, interviewing a Swami, a person with a turban, in the days that meditation was first getting interesting. So it must have been maybe early 1980s or something. And he was interviewing a Swami. They were having a conversation. and. Uh, People were calling in, as they do on the Larry King interview program, and asking questions, and many of them provocative. And the Swami was great about answering them. He just, I mean, he answered them wisely and thoughtfully, and not in any peculiar way, but he didn't get provoked at really sometimes quite hostile questions. And I remember Larry King leaning over his table and looking. Do you have to see Larry King? You know, he's got a table between him and the person he interviews. And he leaned over the table and he looked at the Swami and he said, uh, I'm looking into your eyes, he said, and it's, um, how did he get it so quiet in there? (laughs) And the Swami said to him, 
it is quiet in there. We just stir it up so much. And I was really very touched by that. I think about that a lot in terms of what my mandate is for myself. Don't stir it more than you have to. I think about that Buddha story about all of the seductions of Mara. So it's a, it's a, it's a fabulous story because in its, um, uh, in its drama, arrows and erotic temptations. I don't have arrows of terrible nightmares every day, and I don't have overwhelming temptations every day, but I have lots of arrows of irritating things, and lots of temptations happen all the time. And so I take that as a, a, a metaphor for my life and my arrows and my temptations, not so much that I go around with an invisible shield that causes them to all fall to the ground. I don't. They actually hit me in one way or another, all those. They come into the mind. They arise. This temptation, that annoyance. I have the possibility of not getting involved in it, of saying, I see you, Mara. Do you know, do you remember the, uh, in the beginning of uh, Alice in Wonderland when she falls down the rabbit hole and here are all these things that says, drink me, go here, do this. <laughs> And she does that. She drinks it. She goes here. She does that. I feel all these temptations and all these provocations come into me. And they say, get provoked. Get mad. Get, uh, get the, develop a lust. Want me. Want me. And they're all little signs lighting up. And that I can say, no, thank you. I don't have to do that. Not every provocation requires a response. Not every temptation requires a response. I tell you that whole, whole long story in response to what about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral? It's not about it's all the same, it's just all porridge, it all feels the same, it tastes the same. It doesn't all taste the same. But it, it tastes differently and it causes a different response. And in seeing the response, I can choose, do I want to do this response or not? Is this tending in the direction of happiness or not? Is it wise or not? There are lots of things that arise that are pleasant, that the mind says, oh, get this, this would be a good thing. And some of them may be even wise things to get. I read a, the, the, I, I read a statistic recently about the number of advertisements that come into our minds every day just by being alive. In the newspapers, on the, on the freeways, on the bulletin boards, on the back of trucks, there's hardly a place that you can look that isn't selling you on the email. I have to wade through a bunch of pop-ups before I get to read my email. Sign up, do this, do that. To get through all that thicket of things that, uh, not to speak of the telephone rings and someone says, you have won a you know, three-week trip in Bermuda. They say, you know, I don't want one. <laughs> <laughs> There are some things that are wholesome and valuable to have, and they, they, they arise, they're pleasant. You say, oh, let's do that, let's do that. And, that you know, and often it's fine, but to be able to see the way the mind is bombarded with temptations gets tired from them. And the mind is bombarded with provocations and frightened a lot. Christopher has mentioned a lot about the, the current culture that we're living in. 
It's really, I think, a culture of intentional fear. It's hard to be bombarded with frightening ideas all the time and to respond wisely to it, not hide from the culture or not run away from it, but to stay in it and stand in it and say, you know what? This is the way I'm going to do it. So we have just a few more minutes. I wanted to talk under the sum up making a uh, connection between the kind of uh, wisdom equanimity, the kind of staying power, kind of spiritual power that the Buddha was talking about that comes in those, with those five elements in it of faith, wisdom, energy, concentration, and mindfulness as being really components of the balanced mind of, of equanimity. And I wanted to make the connection between that idea and what we are doing here. Everything that we do here conspires in the direction of the mind settling down into more composed and therefore able to see more clearly, more mindful, and therefore having more energy because it's less distracted, and therefore having more wisdom because wisdom is arising naturally in a mind that's focused and alert, and therefore more faith as well because wisdom is a tremendous rouser of faith. Everything that we do here supports that. We have a very simple schedule. Bell rings if you're sitting, you stand up. If you're standing, you sit down. There's not much else. <laughs> Every once in a while you eat. The day schedule is very easy. There's nothing that you need to do or accomplish at all. You do your work, but nobody's work schedule is very hard. You do the work. We don't talk to each other, which is a very big help. I'm enjoying, actually, the feeling free to look at people and have them look at you. We smile at each other. I think it's quite comforting. I like that, actually. Have this nice yoga early in the morning. I often tell people on retreat that if they didn't try to meditate at all, if they just hung out here and did the schedule exactly, it would happen all by itself. It doesn't matter what you do on the zafu. Actually, what happens if you sit down on the zafu is by and by the stories finish by themselves because they get boring after a while. It's the same reruns. And then your body gets more interesting. And the breath gets more interesting. And the mind states of delight get more interesting. You don't tell the stories eternally. And if you don't put new ones in there, they, they run out by themselves after a while. But I'm convinced that if we just came here, this is such a salubrious atmosphere that the mind settles down and wakes up all by itself. All you have to do is do the schedule. And really do that, because the schedule is really made to support that. So I tell people, do come to all the sittings. Sit on the zafu, even if you're sleepy. One of the great teachings that I've kept in my mind since one of my very, very first retreats years ago came from a man named Usivali. He was a Sri Lankan monk at a, at a uh, retreat that I was at. 
And I told him about my uh, practice um, of uh, going to sleep after the last sitting. I'm not a late stayer up at night. But I was getting up earlier and earlier. I'd get up at 2 or 3, and I'd start to sit. I'd go to the hall. It was a big, uh, I, you had to get dressed, go out of your room, walk, walk a quarter of a mile, go to the meditation hall. It was dark in the middle of the night. I, but I would do all that, get up, get dressed, go to the meditation hall. I'd be the only one in there, sit down, and five minutes later I'd be sleepy. And I'd think, all right, I'll walk. And I'd walk for five minutes, I'd be awake. I'd say, okay, now I'm sleep. I'm sitting. Sit for five minutes, start nodding, stand, walk, sit, walk, sit, five in increments, all night long. And I told him about that, and I said, maybe it's a total loss. Maybe I should just stay in my bed. I, when I wake up, I feel so alert, but then the whole night, up, down, up, down. And then he said, this is what he said, which was so helpful. He said, no, no, he said, I think it's great. You get up, you have zeal, go to the hall, start sitting. I'd say that to you as well. He said, it doesn't matter how many times you fall asleep. He said, in the moment that you wake up, he said, in that moment, know that you're there, know that you're awake, know that you're sitting, feel that you're there. He said, every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And I love that. I just love that idea so much. I have this idea that somewhere there's a cosmic blackboard (laughs) and it's all scribbled up with my conditioning. And it's my personal blackboard. And I, with every moment of mindfulness, am erasing some conditioning. And I thought to myself, first of all, I could be one erase away from enlightened. How do I know? <laughs> and I don't know how much scribble there is left. I'm also thinking that at the same time that I'm erasing, I have plenty of distraction in my life, so I could be scribbling at the same time. (laughs) So I love that idea of every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning, so I love telling it to you. Just do the schedule. And if you get up in the middle of the night, it's one of the really lovely events, experiences of a life to sit in here in this hall in the middle of the night, Turn on a little bit of a light if it's completely dark. Maybe this one over here with one of these little knobs. And sit. And then go back to sleep if you get, if you get sleepy. But it's beautiful here in the middle of the night and very quiet. Let's just sit for a minute together. May the merit of our practice benefit all beings. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 13, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.